Do you believe in ghosts? Can a place absorb bad energy from terrible things that happen there? Would you buy a house that was the scene of an unsolved axe murder? Which I did. Yes, you did. One of our guests did. And we're going to find out what it was like living in a house that was the scene of an infamous and until recently unsolved crime. So what did happen on Del Rio Drive? The details are pretty grisly. In February of 1982, Kathleen Krausnick, she was 29 years old. She was a mom. She went to sleep. And at some point, she was murdered in her bed. Killed by a single axe blow, the axe was still lodged in her head when she was found. Her three-year-old daughter was left alone with her body for hours while her father, James, he worked at Eastman Kodak and he was at work at the time. James came home, he found his wife of eight years murdered and their three-year-old daughter. And not too long after that in time, he took his daughter and then he left for Michigan. About 40 years later, he was indicted and he stood trial for Kathy's murder. But did the crime really get solved? Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. Joining me now to talk about this are defense attorney Don Thompson. His firm is representing James, and we have attorney Allison Carling with us, and she used to live at the scene of the crime. Hi, Allison and Don. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about this fascinating case. Hi, Mary. Hello. Okay, so this happened in Brighton, New York. And under New York law, when you purchase a house where there's been a death, you're entitled to notice about that. So, Allison, when you were about to purchase this house, what did they tell you? So uh, when we were originally looking at the house, uh, my real estate agent actually disclosed um, the facts of what had occurred to the best of her knowledge at that time. And it was interesting because my father actually... Uh, was good friends with Mr. Krausneck's boss at the time of Kathy's murder. And so my parents had known about that. When my real estate agent disclosed it, it it didn't really make a difference. Uh, Myself and my then husband fell in love with the house and fell in love with the neighborhood in Brighton. And I wasn't worried about... (laughs) ghosts or hauntings or anything like that. Uh, Lots of deaths happen in lots of houses. And so we went ahead and with the purchase of the house and it was a wonderful family home for us for many years. And I've actually been in that house. I made a, Allison was kind enough to let me make a short film there. So you can actually see the inside of the house. I will put a link to that a little short film in the show notes. So anyway, you can check that out if you want to. Allison, but there was still a lot of interest in this in this case, wasn't there, because it was unsolved. What was it like owning this infamous house? Did, did people stop by? Well, it was interesting because obviously uh, I am an attorney. I worked within the court system. At the time I purchased the house, I was a member of the uh, public defender's office in Monroe County. And so anytime I said where I lived, most of the bar and... The court personnel uh, knew of the address, 
And um, so everybody was asking me about, oh my gosh, what does it, you know, how is it that you live in this house? Aren't you scared? Is it haunted? Uh, those kinds of questions. Obviously, I never had a bad feeling ever in the house. It was a wonderful family home. But there was a lot of interest. And throughout the years, um, there were TV personnel that had been in the local Rochester area uh, during the time um, of the murder that then had moved on to more national shows that had inquired about coming in and filming and getting towards sort of the reopening of the case or the reopening of the cold case, uh, there were some law enforcement personnel that asked to do walkthroughs as well. So there, there had always been a significant interest in the home. It's a great house. Okay, so let's kind of go back in time to the beginning. James Krausnick, he wasn't really running from the law, so to speak, like he wasn't a fugitive. The district attorney's office back in the 80s didn't choose to indict him. Don, do you know a little bit about that initial investigation and what happened? Yeah, I mean, they went through the initial investigation. And like you said in the intro, you know, one of the important things was time of death. Was there any opportunity for James to have committed the crime? And the way that they tried to calculate time of death was based upon the temperature of Kathleen's body at the time that it was discovered. Now, this is basically junk science, but there is sort of a, a standard formula for degrees per hour in temperature to do this calculation. And based on the initial calculations that they did, they figured that James would have had to been at work at the time of death, so he did not have the opportunity to commit the crime. They had you know, n no other uh, identified likely suspects, although there was a really good suspect who lived about two blocks away. Uh, they didn't really follow up on him or investigate him. He was an abuser, raper, killer of other women uh, and was actually on Depro-Pavera at the time, which was a drug that was administered to try to curb involuntary sexual urges. And it wasn't... Oh, is that what they call chemical castration? Yeah, basically, yeah. Chemical castration. And it wasn't, in his case, maybe because the urges were so strong or whatever, it wasn't completely effective. And within a couple of weeks prior to this homicide taking place, he had made statements to other people about how he was still having these urges and he wanted to go out and harm women. And he was, you know, kind of in the the hunt for a victim, if you will. Uh, and, you know, this they, they discounted him as uh, a suspect in this case because uh, the victim was not sexually assaulted. But with the Depro-Provera, he could not have sexually assaulted her. And the allegation or the argument was that, you know, as a result of that frustration, you know, he committed the murder, which, which, you know, could have, have been the case. Actually, 
on his deathbed in prison for other rapes of women, he confessed to committing this murder. But that was discounted by the authorities. They didn't buy it. Uh, They thought it was just a bid for him to try to die outside of the prison because he was terminally ill, which it was. But he gave a pretty consistent confession. Why would that have gotten him out of prison? Well, he he tried to barter uh, with information that he had on other unsolved crimes to just be able to die in a hospice rather than in prison. Okay. And it, it, it didn't work. Um, he died in prison. But he did, in the course of that, confess to this murder and confess to other crimes as well that you know he wasn't excluded from by any means but that was his his attempt you know kind of at the end to try to die outside of the prison okay you know what's always kind of bothered me about this case is that you know is that James left you know that he left with his daughter it just you know as a defense attorney i know that you have to have sufficient evidence but it did always bother me that he left it felt like he was acting like a fugitive even though Maybe he had a very good reason not to trust the the authorities in how they were conducting their their investigation. And, you know, they are notorious as far as botching up the crime scene. Were there any problems with this crime scene? Yeah, I mean, as far as leaving, you know, never mind the crime scene. I mean, he had no family here, Mm. you know, other than Kathleen, who is now dead, and his daughter. You know, who would want to stay in that house? True. You know, his family was was back in the Midwest, and he went back to his family. You know, I'd I'd do the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm not going to stay in a house where my wife was murdered. I mean, you'd want to get the hell out of there as quick as you could, right? But yeah, I mean, there were, there were problems with the the crime scene, and and part of the problem was there was a dispute about whether or not an electric blanket that was on the bed was on or off, which obviously would affect the temperature of the body, which would affect the calculation as to time of death. And there there wasn't really so much a dispute. The police reports at the time indicated the blanket was off. But, you know, the calculations based on that would have, if you follow the accepted formula, would have given James an alibi because he would have been at work at the time of death so later on in the reinvestigation, you know, it became contentious as to whether the blanket was on or off and whether or not this calculation, in fact, showed the time of death uh, during the period where he was at work. Yeah, so they reopened the case in 2015. Do we, do we know why they, they did? Were they just reopening all cold cases or was there some a particular push? Well, I mean, th- there was... What what happens here a lot of times is retired uh, police officers, either Rochester police officers or police officers from Brighton or wherever, wind up being investigators for the district attorney's office. So that was the case here. Uh, and there were investigators from the district attorney's office who re- remembered the case and had still, you know, questions about the case and whether or not the case could be solved. You know, they, they went back and they did some reinvestigation. Uh, they got... Uh, a very famous medical examiner, pathologist, Michael Bodden, to give basically a different opinion, changing 
in his view, the accepted formula for a calculation of time of death based on body temperature that would have not excluded uh, James from being someone who had the opportunity to commit the crime. And there's actually an email uh, that came out at trial from one of the district attorney's investigators to the district attorney uh, who was uh, coming up for election at the time. In some and substance, I don't remember the exact words, but in some and substance, it was, you know, this will be great. It's an election year. So that might have had a little to do with it. Sure. So Baden is kind of an interesting guy. He's, uh, I did a little bit of research into him because I, I had heard that he um, had been hired by Epstein's brother, uh, Jeffrey mm-hmm. Epstein's brother, to look at that autopsy. And of course, he came up with a different result, you know, pointing to manner of death being homicide right. rather than suicide, which was contradicting the office of the chief medical examiner in New York. And he used to be the chief medical examiner in New York, but he was only there for, I think, about a year before he was fired because he he got into all kinds of trouble. He had sloppy record keeping, uh, poor judgment. He lacked cooperation. He made errors that led to acquittals and uh, poor procedures that left cases unsolved due to improper death investigations. Then after he's fired, he kind of rebrands himself as like a demi-celebrity, and he did independent autopsies for Michael Brown, Aaron Hernandez, um, John Belushi. He testified at the OJ trial and the, and the Phil Spector trial. Now, his second wife was a defense attorney on that spill, uh, the Phil Spector trial case, uh, and he's a frequent guest on Fox and shows like Fox and Friends and things like that. So he's, you know, he's made himself into this kind of celebrity forensic pathologist. But it sounds to me like in this case, he kind of came in and sort of redid the math. Did he justify as to why the math is is different now? Um, no. Uh, he, he's, you, you hit the nail on the head. He's kind of one of these guys that's more about celebrity than pathology. Um, you know, he kind of reminds me of Dr. Oz or one of these guys. And he came in and he said, well, this is the accepted formula for temperature with respect to calculation of time of death when you're, when you're dealing with, with a body with an unknown time of death. Now, credible pathologists, medical examiners, won't do those calculations because they, they recognize that it's just junk science and there's no real basis for it. But you know, the, the, the accepted calculation is like 1.5 degrees per hour. Um, and he said, when he came back in here, well, you know, that's just a suggestion. That's not like like a peer-reviewed formula that everybody has to apply. And, you know, I'm going to apply a different formula because I think it's more pertinent in this case. He didn't say why, but decided he was just going to change the formula. And by changing the formula, he changes the potential time of death. But that's just his formula? Yep. He just kind of made it up as he went along. He said, well, you know, this formula that everybody accepts and that everybody's used, which is fucking nonsense anyway, is uh, not necessarily the only formula you can use. And I think under these circumstances, I should use this different formula, which results in a different time of death. Mm. Well, that's that's kind of a really difficult thing for a jury to to get their head around. 
you know, just a, a, a change in formula. Um, and so did Krausnick put on his own expert? Uh, well, actually, uh, the Monroe County Medical Examiner testified in this case uh, and testified that she would not attempt to estimate time of death based upon temperature because that was not legitimate science. So he was able to utilize that. And, you know, there, there was no other basis for the calculations that, that Baden came up with. Uh, aside from his perhaps overactive imagination, well, that should be an interesting uh, appellate issue. Uh, it's going to it's going to be a great appellate issue because, among other things, um, there was truthfully no new evidence that resulted in the prosecution at this point. Mm-hmm. So there's been this decades of delay for no apparent reason. There was no. They tried to test DNA, for example. There was no. DNA evidence that that indicated a perpetrator that had been recently discovered that wasn't available back at the time of the investigation. You know, no new evidence like that, which, you know, in many cases is the reason for the delay. You know, technology develops. Now you can acquire DNA evidence. You couldn't acquire it before. And now you can pursue this prosecution. There was nothing like that here. Right. I mean, it, they, the prosecutor admitted that the purely circumstantial, that there is no physical evidence tying him to that. Right. And I mean, the, the, the problem in these cases is always, I mean, if you watch any of these crime shows, you know, the wife is killed. Well, <laughs> of course, the husband's the number one suspect. And, you know, the, the, the jury in that position is, is left with, well, I mean, who else could it be? I mean, why, why would it be anybody else? Well, you know, here they had uh, Edward Larrabee, uh, this habitual sexual offender and abuser of women who lived a couple of blocks away and was on Depro Pivera and was engaged in you know, previous violent acts of, of some notoriety here in Rochester against women. But they discounted him almost immediately for reasons that I can't fathom. But they decided he wasn't going to be their suspect. You know, when they don't go down all of the trails and, you know, we're all defense attorneys here, it's very frustrating because then you don't you don't really get a full picture of what the case could be. If they if they narrowed their suspect too soon, then they kind of have the opportunity to create a narrative as opposed to just have a fact, you know, as a fact finding exercise, you know, look at look at everything and then make a decision, you know, when they when they jump to a conclusion too quickly. Uh, and exclude people too quickly, then you could be in a situation like this where you had a trial and it's like, well, why didn't why didn't the police do this, this, this? And that's a really I've had to argue that at trials before. It's really it's very, very unsatisfying to everybody, you know, and the victim's family in particular. And I think that it's sad what's happened in this case. You know, you have uh, the, the daughter, Sarah, who's now an adult and who is staunchly b- believes in her father's innocence. and then. The grandfather, Kathy's father, is, you know, he's elderly, right? He's like 95. You know, he firmly believes that um, James killed her in his, uh, I think his quote was like, I hope you live 100 yeah. years and enjoy your new your new place. Because, you know, spoiler alert, he was convicted in this new trial or in this trial and sentenced to 25 years to life. And it seems like 
in a case where there's no physical evidence and you have just one expert who changes his formula, you know, that that's a pretty flimsy set of evidence. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's a lot of, of early on confirmation bias. Like if you ever watch the show Cops, you know, where they go out to the scene and they're they're called there and you know who's going to get arrested. It's the guy without the shirt on, right? But they have a little huddle and they talk about what happened and they decide what happened. And from there on, that's what happened. And, you know, it's no longer investigation at that point. Then it's gathering of evidence to try to prove that what they think happened, happened. And I think there was a lot of confirmation bias here where they decided early on, well, who else could the suspect be? It's got to be James Krausnick. What evidence can we find that indicates that it was, in fact, James Krausnick? Yeah, they they came up with a, a motive. You know, they always like want to try to come up with a motive. It's a pretty flimsy motive. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, he <laughs> James had done a, a doctoral thea, thesis. Uh, and he had not done the last step of it. He hadn't quite finished it. Uh, I, I, I guess you have to defend it or whatever you have to do. I don't know what it is. He, he'd done the whole thing. He'd submitted it, and he hadn't got, like, the stamp of approval. And Kodak knew that, though. Um, you know, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't like that was going to come out and be, you know, this big scandal that was going to, you know, uh, tank his career or anything like that. But the prosecution's theory was that, you know, his wife knew about this and that this was going to be made known and that it was going to result in embarrassment to him and ruination of his career and the whole thing, which is absolutely not true. But that was their theory about why he had to silence her. But I mean, it, it's you talked before about the crime scene. It was a weird crime scene because. The house, which Allison knows probably better than anybody, had, um, you know, here we call it a breezeway. You know, it's kind of a, a passageway between like the garage and the house. And there's a, it's like a sledgehammer, basically, that appears to be brought from the garage uh, into the breezeway area. And then there's obviously the axe that is used to, to murder Kathleen. Well, uh, the sledgehammer that's brought from the, the garage into the breezeway is supposedly used to like break a window to make it look like this is a, a burglary. But if, if you were James Krausnick and you lived there, you would know that you, you don't need a sledgehammer to break that window and you wouldn't need to bring a sledgehammer into the breezeway. I think that's more of an indication of somebody who's maybe not familiar with the property and doesn't know what kind of barriers they're going to face and thinks, you know, we, I might need to really wallop on something here. So, you know, let's pick up this this significant tool that's available to me in the garage and, uh, you know, go in with that. And, oh, well, I guess I don't really need all of that. Mm -hmm. So I'll just leave it here in the breezeway and, and take the second tool, the axe, with me into the home. Did Was there any thought about calling um, the daughter? Well. I mean, I know she was only three at the time, but. Yeah, I mean, she, she didn't really have a, a recollection of a lot of what 
took place at the time. I mean, and the thought, I think, at trial was more just to the fact that she was there. And the allegation was that James, who very obviously loved his daughter, would have had to leave her in the home with her mother's body for basically the entire day while he was at work because he was at work. And many people at work saw him and you know talked about their interactions with him that day, and then uh, go home and then you know pretend like he was just discovering the crime scene, which really would be a, a pretty significant degree of sociopathy if you could if you could pull that off. Yeah, and you know I not actually part of the record, but you know I had an opportunity to interact with with James and to meet with him and to speak with him and his his now wife and his daughter and he's just not a sociopath so you know I I I don't think that he could have pulled it off in that manner even if he wanted to and there's really no indication that he wanted to well I read somewhere that she that at the time she told police that she saw a a bad man which I thought was a really interesting you know, again, it'd be hard for her to remember again if who you can't necessarily remember at three, but right. I mean, it would be tough for her to. Why would she have called I, her dad a bad man? Right, unless he was disguised, True. for example, which there was no indication of. And um, what you know, one of the other theories of the prosecution was that well, maybe they were having some marital difficulties because there was a flyer from a. Uh, a marital counselor found in apparently the trunk of the, also not real clear from the investigation, but apparently in the trunk of the car along with a bunch of other papers. Um, and that was maybe an indication that their marriage was was in a rocky stage or something like that. But, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I've gotten things like that under my windshield wiper, depending on where I park. Uh, at, at various times, and you know, maybe you just take it and you throw it in the car, you throw it in the trunk, or um, they try to follow up with the therapist who was listed on the flyer, and he said, "I, you know, I never talked to any of them. I don't know, I, I don't know what you're talking about, and you know, I never counseled them or had any contact with them, to the best of my recollection." So, you know, it, it apparently meant nothing, but the prosecution tried to kind of spin that into gold. Right. So it really sounds to me like it boils down to Baden's opinion. That's really the only thing that changed. Yeah, that that was absolutely the only thing that changed. There was no new evidence. There was nothing additional that took place beyond the original investigation, aside from Ed Larrabee's confession to committing the crime, you know, on his deathbed while he was in prison which was not obviously relied upon by the prosecution. Right. Was the jury able to hear that? The evidence with respect to Larrabee was pretty restricted, and that may be an issue for the appeal as well. But, you know, I think really the primary issue for the appeal is going to be the long period of delay in the prosecution with truthfully no new evidence other than the ability to find a pathologist who would give a different opinion than what was previously arrived at. I mean, and interestingly, 
you know, the district attorney, Biden was not the first choice. They kind of cast about for different pathologists in the area who might give a different opinion. And uh, we were able to contact one of the guys that was contacted by the district attorney. And he said that he had told him, no, this this is what it is. And, you know, you kind of can't change the facts here. So I can't give you the testimony you're looking for. So then they, you know, they went a little bit further and, you know, looked farther afield and they wound up finding Baden. Interesting. I'll be I'll I'll be waiting to see, you know, what happens, you know, at the appellate level. Yeah, it, it, it'll be very interesting. You know, there there aren't a lot of cases. Terranovich and Singer are, are the two cases that are kind of preeminent as far as the delay in prosecution and whether or not there's a justification for delay in prosecution. Um, there is not right now, I don't think, a better case in the state of New York on this delay question than the Krausnick case. So it'll be a very interesting appeal. Well, we uh, we will be we'll be paying attention to it here at uh, May It Displease the Court. Well, what do you think, Allison, after the trial? Well, I unfortunately, I only got to see a little bit of the trial. Um, I tried to keep abreast of it um, as much as I could with my regular work. Uh, I sold the house in 2017, um, and I know there have been at least two families in there since. Um, and it, we'll see. I, I understand there was there was one neighbor uh, that lived across the street. I understand at the time of the murder that also was still there when I moved in. I knew her very tangentially. Um, she was a lovely woman, spent half the time in California. Uh, I never spoke to her about the case, but I understand that she testified. Um, and I understand that she testified that um, there could have possibly been uh, al- alternative uh, individuals or an individual that was uh, running in the neighborhood at the time that she found strange. But other than that, like I said, I, I unfortunately didn't get to see uh, enough of the trial to really have an opinion. But I do know that uh, that she did not believe uh, that Mr. Krausnick, um would have been the perpetrator. So I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Um, well, guys, this has been a really interesting look behind the scenes at uh, the prosecution of a 40-year-old murder. I want to thank you so much, Don and Allison, for coming on to talk about what is colloquially known in in Rochester as the Brighton Axe murder. Yeah, you gave us a, a really up-close look at the details of this, and we'll be, we'll be sure to follow this story. So thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. All right. This episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside. Mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson. Social media by Jen Nicholson. You can always find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod or drop an email at court at gmail.com. We would love you to rate and review the show as it helps others find the program. Theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. You can check out the show notes to learn more. Had to cry, paid more than-